You're listening to Seed of the Woman, a podcast dedicated to telling the grandest story of all and to exposing the mystery of 666. Randall Gilmore here. Throughout my telling of the story of the seed of the woman, I've said repeatedly that the corruption we're seeing now at the end of the age, with all of its promises of a human-centered utopia, a corruption that will culminate in the beast out of the sea rising someday to dominate the world, it's a corruption that began long ago. And it focused in the beginning on using insight into God's amazing wisdom and power against him and on setting aside the mandates and commandments that God issued, and on opposing God's plan for the seed of the woman, while imposing a counter-story that includes the invention of images that stand for the corruption, as well as the corruption of images that God deployed originally to represent His plan. Images, for example, like the rainbow, which God intended to represent His promise to preserve the world right up to the time of the restoration of all things but which Satan has recently corrupted to stand for rebellion against God's original design for marriage and human relationships. Satan is behind the corruption of images like the rainbow and the corruption of symbols such as 666. But to solidify the tie between 666 and the corruption referred to throughout the scriptures, in this episode, I'm going to talk further about the use of number in scripture and how to draw conclusions that are valid and reliable whenever we study them. I'll get started with this right after the break. Now, right at the start, I need to say that this episode is going to be a little longer than usual. And the reason for that is what I'm about to share applies to our study of the entire story of the seed of the woman. Now, maybe you've already noticed But as I talk about the use of number in scripture, I'm being careful not to use the word numerology. And that's because the word numerology has a lot of negative connotations, including the belief that numbers can influence or should influence our lives and any decisions that we make from day to day. That's the kind of abuse of numbers pagans have always engaged in under Satan's influence. So that's not what I'm going to do in this episode. I'm going to focus instead on explaining how to approach the study of numbers in Scripture, especially a number like 666, which has such a history as I've shown in previous episodes, but also a future as the number of the beast and the number of his name. I'm going to show that it's possible to study numbers like 666 in a way that steers clear of abuse, while yielding interpretations from Scripture that are both valid and reliable. Now, to get started, I'm going to ask you to take a pen or a pencil and write down the number four. So, what do you see? Do you actually see four of something? Of course not. What you've written is only a symbol of the quantity we refer to as four. My point in this little exercise is that numbers, like letters of the alphabet and words, are symbols. And they belong to what communication science calls symbolic interaction. By the way, 
A huge part of my graduate training is in communication science, so I love talking about this stuff. Symbolic interaction simply means that numbers, letters, and words are not the actual thing or things they represent. With few exceptions, they only refer to those things, regardless of whether the things we're talking about are concrete or abstract. So, for example, when I tell my wife that I love her, I'm using a word formed by the letters L-O-V-E to represent the honored place she holds in my heart, along with the strong feelings of attachment and esteem that I have for her. But the word love itself is not the actual honored place that she holds in my heart. And it's not the actual strong feelings of attachment and esteem that I have for her. The word love simply refers to those. And the same thing could be said about the vast majority of words in our vocabulary. The word tree, for example, is not the actual woody plant of considerable height that we see growing in various places. The word house is not the actual structure we live in. And on and on it goes. It's the nature of symbolic interaction. And all of this is summed up in an old saying in communication science that goes like this, quote, the map is not the territory. In other words, as useful as maps are, they're only symbols of the actual territory they represent. And as I've said, the same is true for letters and words and for numbers. Numbers are symbols. And like most symbols, they have a lot of flexibility. So with this in mind, I want to list five ways that numbers as symbols are used in scripture. The first is to specify quantities. That is how many there are of this or that. The second use of numbers in scriptures is to show order. I'm talking now about number words such as first, or second, or third, or fourth, etc. And the third way that numbers are used in scripture is in reference to calendars and measures of time. And the fourth way involves the gematria of words and names. Finally, numbers are also used in scripture to communicate abstract concepts, characteristics, and values. Now, I know that someone is going to think of some other category to describe how numbers are used in Scripture, but for now we'll work with these five. And with that said, there really shouldn't be a lot of controversy about the first three categories. Numbers in Scripture used to represent quantities, to show order, and to mark calendars and measures of time. The controversy rises with respect to gematria and the use of numbers to represent abstract concepts, characteristics, and values. One of the big reasons why these last two are so controversial is because of the liberties that some people take with well-established principles of inductive Bible study. And that can lead to a lot of speculation and error. Now, I briefly mentioned the rules of inductive Bible study at the end of the previous episode, but I think it's important to explain in more detail now. And I really want you to stick with me here, because what I'm about to say affects the study of all of God's Word and not just the parts that mention numbers. And besides, this is just one more way to help you recognize the system of the beast while it's still developing. And that's going to help you to avoid collaborating with that system, either out of ignorance or by deception. So the use of the inductive method to study scripture is well established. It's a method that involves deduction, though it has a very different starting point. Deduction starts with a premise and moves to particulars that must also be true if the premise is true. By contrast, the inductive method begins with particulars and ends with generalizations. 
And all this happens in five steps. Here they are. Step one, the collection of data. That is gathering facts. That's what we called observation in Bible college back in the day. Step two is classification, which involves putting the data in categories or in some other type of order. Step three is deduction, which refers to drawing conclusions or perhaps formulating hypotheses. Step four, verification, which means checking to see whether our conclusions or hypotheses hold true more generally. And I think I should say, conclusions drawn from examining particulars about what's universal should always be held lightly. Understanding the possibility of a particular emerging that disconfirms the previous deduction. And then the last step, application, which refers to pragmatics and how all of this informs what we should be thinking and doing. Like I say, I first learned this system in Bible college back in the day, only my professors back then collapsed the five steps into just three, observation, interpretation, and application. But I'm going to use all five because I think they offer a clearer picture of the kind of study I'm talking about. So here they are once again. Step one, the collection of facts. Step two, classification of those facts. Step three, deduction, that is formulating conclusions or hypotheses. Step four, verification. That means checking those conclusions or hypotheses to see if they are universal. And then finally, step five, application. Of course, a lot of people will recognize these steps as part of what's called the scientific method. And like most uses of the scientific method, when it comes to studying numbers in Scripture, we begin with a few assumptions. So, for example, I'm assuming that the God of the Bible is infinitely wise and therefore more than capable of using numbers to symbolize meanings beyond the quantities of things or the order of things or to mark the passing of time in a calendar. I'm also assuming that nothing is included in Scripture by chance, that it is indeed possible to discern God's intended meanings of numbers in Scripture. Now, as I indicated earlier, these things are not original to me, so I'm standing on the shoulders of others who've done a ton of work in this area. And I don't think I can say this often enough. The reason I'm plowing through all this is because it helps us to recognize the system of the beast while it's still developing now, prior to the final seven years. So let me apply the five-step framework of the inductive method to a study of the number 666 in Scripture. First, the collection of facts. So I use a concordance to find a total of four mentions of 666 in both the Old and New Testaments. The four are found in 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 14, 2 Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 13, Ezra chapter 2 and verse 13, and Revelation chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. I also discover from reading various sources that there are two Greek words used in the New Testament with a gematria value of 666. And by the way, I know I said last time there is only one Greek word used in the New Testament with a gematria value of 666, so I'll explain what I mean by two words in just a moment. In step two, I sort these facts into two broad categories, references to 666 that explicitly reveal its meaning and references to 666 that do not explicitly reveal its meaning. 
Under the first category, there's only one reference, and that's Revelation chapter 13, verses 17 through 18. The only reference in Scripture that explicitly points to 666 as a symbol of something more than a quantity or ordering of things. Revelation 13, verses 17 and 18 explicitly says that 666 is the number of man and of the beast, as the beast leads a political, economic, and religious system tied to Satan. Now, just from the data I've collected and classified so far, I can begin the third step in the inductive process, deduction. I deduce that 666, whenever it appears in Scripture, refers to the beliefs, values, and practices tied to the elevation of man into political, economic, and religious systems under Satan's influence. And my deduction is not something I just pull out of thin air. Put in the form of a syllogism, the logic behind my deduction goes like this. Statement number one, 666 in Scripture symbolizes beliefs, values, and practices tied to the elevation of man into political, economic, and religious systems under Satan's influence. Statement number two, 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 14, 2 Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 13, Ezra chapter 2 and verse 13, mention 666. Therefore, 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 14, 2 Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 13, Ezra chapter 2 and verse 13, refer to the elevation of man and to political, economic, and religious systems under Satan's influence. Now, this last statement, asserting that the other verses where 666 appears in Scripture also refer to the elevation of man and to political, economic, and religious systems under Satan's influence, is a deduction. And by the way, I'm going to put these steps into a PDF that you can access through the link in the notes for this episode. So the steps I've taken so far have yielded a deduction, but it needs to be verified. And that's the fourth step. And in line with the fourth step of inductive study, I need to go to the passages mentioned to discover what they reveal and whether they confirm my deduction or not. So, for example, 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 14 is the verse that says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. I explained in episode 9 that Solomon's receiving 666 talents of gold introduces a period in the political, economic, and religious system he ruled when he turns from God to embrace the paganism of his day. Paganism very clearly connected to Satan's influence and control. And 2 Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 13 is a parallel to this account. So I can make a solid argument in favor of the use of 666 in both 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 14 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 13 as confirming my deduction. But what about Ezra chapter 2 and verse 13? That's a verse that reports on the number of exiles who returned to Jerusalem from captivity in Babylon. It simply reads, The sons of Adonikam, 666. Now, if I'm honest, I have to admit there's nothing here either directly or in the surrounding verses that points to beliefs, values, and practices tied to the elevation of man or to a political, economic, and religious system under Satan's influence. Although Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 18 mysteriously adds 1 to Ezra's count, making a total of 667 sons 
rather than 666. And there are solid explanations for this difference. But among them are speculations that Ezra's accounting is an intentional reference to the paganism of 666, and that Adonikam will be revealed someday as the actual name of the beast out of the sea. But that's just speculation. And when it comes to speculation, I have thoughts of my own about the matter. I happen to think that the 666 in Ezra's accounting is meant to stand out. But I also think it's more likely intended to point to the Lord's victory over paganism. Either way, Ezra chapter 2 and verse 13 does not confirm my deduction. But it doesn't disprove it either. If Ezra chapter 2 and verse 13 tied 666 explicitly to beliefs, values, and practices under God's influence, it would disprove my deduction. But that isn't the case. And like I say, there are several plausible speculations on how 666 in Ezra chapter 2 and verse 13 ties to 666 in Revelation. But because they're speculations and not explicit or obvious tie-ins, I have less confidence in saying that Ezra chapter 2 and verse 13 verifies my deduction. And this is where additional rules should enter in for determining how much or how little confidence someone might have in their deductions of any sort. For example, I've already drawn a distinction between mentions of 666 that explicitly tie into the beliefs, values, and practices connected to the elevation of man under the influence of Satan, and those mentions that do not tie in explicitly. And as for the mentions that do not tie in explicitly, I now have distinguished further between those framed by a context that's consistent with Revelation 13's use of 666 and those with no such obvious frame. So let me just say, this process as I've described it has allowed me to create a five-point scale to score how much confidence I have or don't have in the verification process. And if you're interested, I'll include that also in the PDF for this episode. Now, the process I just described is the same process I used in the previous episode to explain the significance of the Greek word euporia and its gematria value of 666. And back then, I didn't even mention the second Greek word that also returns a gematria value of 666. And the first reason why is because the form of that word that returns the value of 666 doesn't actually appear in the New Testament. It appears in other forms that return other values. And besides this, whenever the word does appear in its other forms, the context sometimes connects it to beliefs, values, and practices tied to God's influence not Satan's. So in the end, I want to be very clear. Whether it's the number 666 or any other number used in Scripture, it's possible to use the inductive method of Bible study to draw conclusions that are valid and reliable. And when it comes to 666 in particular, we see in Scripture a clear connection between this number, the number 666, and Satan's various attempts throughout history to corrupt God's design of the universe and the promise of the seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, other than what happened in Solomon's case, one of Satan's other most famous attempts to corrupt the story of the seed of the woman took place at Babel, an attempt that undoubtedly involved a corrupt use of 666. But God intervened and destroyed the tower and confused the language of those who built it and disperse them over the face of all the earth. But one day in the future, 
As Revelation chapters 13 and beyond clearly indicate, a Babel-like political, economic, and religious system will return and attempt once again to overthrow God's plan. So what are we to do now in the buildup to the final seven years? Is it even realistic to think that anyone can truly endure? What can we learn from another time in history when a Babel-like system made an appearance and dominated the world? More next time on Seed of the Woman.